We're focusing on in-home healthcare because we think it's time has finally come. Kind of like telehealth, pre-COVID, telehealth was just a little niche thing. And during COVID, it's up 10, 20, 30x. I mean, the numbers are off the charts. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Before we dive in, a few quick business updates. First, check out Thunder.VC, the new platform that connects founders and investors in a respectful way. In my mind, it has to be the easiest way to connect with venture funds and angels. Um, Jump on and reserve your handle as soon as you can at Thunder.VC. Also, our incubator interplay is accepting applications. Our program is super active. It's not an accelerator. If an accelerator is a classroom format, our incubator is much more like private tutoring. You can learn more and apply at interplay.vc. On today's show, I chat with Samer Hamada, founder and CEO of Zeal. Zeal started by providing on-demand massages, and as you might expect, their business was absolutely decimated by COVID. In a do-or-die situation, they switched their strategy. And they expanded to offer other services, such as in-home COVID testing, and they're rolling out at-home and in-office vaccinations. They're positioned to be a pioneer in the nascent at-home medicine market. In our conversation, we explore this topic. We chat about how companies can navigate crises and better position themselves for success. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Venwise. Venwise is a curated community of high-growth leaders. It's isolating being a leader, but it doesn't have to be. Through Venwise, you can join discussions and gain support from fellow C-level executives at high-growth tech companies. If you're interested, apply by visiting venwise.com. Uh, so let's jump in. Do you, Summer, I always like to start, uh, increasingly as we've got into this, by focusing on people's business backgrounds first. I find it helps people understand who we're talking to. And then we can kind of dive in um, to different dimensions or aspects or perspectives. So if you wouldn't mind, could you introduce us to Zeal? Oh, yeah. Look, Zeal is a heck of a story these days because for those of you who've used it before, we're a technology-enabled massage therapy company. We come to your home and you know we could get to your house before COVID in as little as one hour in 100 cities around the U.S. It was really a magical experience. We got it to $50 million of GMV annualized in February Incredible. 2020, breaking even. And then COVID hit. And everyone knows within two weeks, March 13, we're at zero revenue. The platform shut down in every state in the country. We briefly tried to stay open in a couple of states, actually. It was really funny. There were a number of providers and customers who were like, it's up to me if I want to get a massage. And if the provider wants to work in my house, like, you know, this isn't up to the state. So there's a bit of like, you know, personal rights, which of course in America here, we're so fond of, you know, it's in our constitution, but the states won over. There was just too much backlash. Uh, so we, we shut it all down March 13. And we had no revenue coming in for six weeks. It was the most humbling experience I've ever been through. And I've been through, you know, the 1991-92 recessions, the, the uh, you know, the, the uh, 9-11, you know, obviously experience for those of you who were in New York then, which came after the NASDAQ 2000 crash. And then, of course, the 08, you know, crash. And so there was nothing quite like the COVID crash. 
But we summoned all of our resources. You know, everybody on the team was just a heck of a warrior. And we did everything you would expect. We, we cut all of the non-people costs in a matter of days and renegotiated every contract from Salesforce to, to uh, our rent you know, that we could. But it became clear by the end of March that we couldn't spare people. And so we had to do furloughs, layoffs, and pay cuts and all that over the coming weeks and months. Um, but thankfully, our government came through and provided PPP loans. I, I still wish they gave more PPP loans to restaurants and bars than they did to, to uh, companies like ours. But, but you know, we, we needed it because our massage therapists had no work. So you know, we, we needed that money and we had to sprinkle it around. So it was, it was very necessary. To keep you know as many people as possible employed, and so uh, we're, we're a year into COVID now, the pandemic. It's just about the anniversary of the start of it. How has the business sustained through that period? It sounds like you went into triage mode. Are, yeah, are we're you in guys massive still triage functional? Mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's what happened, and and I, I like to say that you know crisis begets innovation because when you're staring death in the face, which is what what happened on March 13th. You know, we weren't going to wait for the states to reopen. I mean, as far as we were concerned, massage therapy in the home, home might be dead for a long time to come. So we immediately started working on an idea that my team and I had had, I'd say at least two or three years earlier, but maybe didn't have the guts to pursue. And it took COVID to kick us in the ass to do it. And that is to become a medical practice. And we finally unveiled our medical practice in November this year. Well, we said, we, we said this, look, we, we already know how to come to the home. We've been coming to the home for eight years. At that time, we had delivered more than like a million five appointments to the home. You know, massage therapy is one of the most difficult in-home experiences to actually deliver. If you think about it, it's an hour. You're taking care of somebody in pain. And there's a serious trust and safety element because the patient is you know, getting down to their you know, gym shorts. Um, you know, they're going under, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sheet, the therapist, 80% of whom in America are female massage therapists, they're going to a stranger's home. So we'd, we'd worked out over the past eight years before COVID, every little detail you could imagine around trust and safety, ID verification, GPS, you know, insurance, the whole. So there's a high level of trust. We already have that. We already are delivering care to the home. Why don't we just do more medical Type care. Why are we sticking to you know this thing called spa massage? So that's what we did. In November, we unveiled our first medical service, which was COVID testing in the home. We started in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. We've now serviced nearly ten thousand patients in the home. Mm-hmm. It's been an amazing experience. People are like, "Wow, somebody you know gets here in a few hours, swabs everyone's noses in a matter of five minutes. We courier the samples down to our lab um, in Brooklyn." Uh, and you get your results in under 24 hours and you get the nice PDF that you can use during your international travel or for your workplace or whatever, right? So it's incredible. What a convenient service. Now, I knew you had uh, introduced the COVID testing uh, late last year. I didn't realize it was part of a longer term plan of doing a medical play. Where it does is. it go from COVID testing now that you've, you've kind of opened that door? Well, the, the healthcare practitioner who's coming to your home for COVID testing is a registered nurse, licensed uh, practical nurse, so LPN, RN, or a nurse practitioner. These are highly skilled healthcare workers. 
So nurses are able to do a lot of things in America. So we're doing some blood draws. They can inject medication. Mm. We were, I'm happy to announce today that a few days ago, we were approved by New York City Department of Health to be an official COVID vaccinator. So oh, wow. So it's going to be on-demand vaccines? Well, on-demand, no, because you do have to do a lot of you know, paperwork and there's some prep. And um, we're approved for J&J vaccine because okay. we have a vaccine refrigerator here in the office behind me, but not but it's, but it's not vaccine a freezer. At home. Vaccine at home and in the wow. office. We're really wow. going to focus more on the office as a return to work strategy uh, versus home. Uh, the reason is because it's very critical you don't waste a dose of vaccine and each J&J vial has five doses. So mm-hmm. we're still thinking through the home aspect, but you're going to have to do multiples of five. Right. So it's going to be a little so bit tricky. Your neighbor's got to come over. Yeah. But in the office, obviously, it'll be very easy to, to plan and, and coordinate everything. But yeah, I'm really excited. Right now, J&J vaccine is being developed. And so there's, there's shortages all over the country. So I'm hoping in a few weeks, we get our allotment in New York City and uh, we'll then announce it right, in the emails and to all of our customers. I think it's going to be just, there's going to be you know, gangbuster demand for this thing. And uh, we'll go out and vaccinate people. So in, in some ways, we're, we're doing our part right, to get America back to work and back to normal, which, which makes us really happy. So that's the nurse aspect of it. And then, uh, you know, we're working on true to our brand, which is taking care of your, you know, body, your injuries, your chronic lower back pain, right? Your, your sleep disorder, your anxiety, which is what massage therapy is for. We're applying that whole thing into the medical practice. So think medical massage, think physical therapy. We're adding those disciplines. We'll be making some great announcements here in the coming weeks and months of new lines of you know, medicine that we'll, we'll be delivering you know, into the home. How did um, the investor community, and maybe not specific to your investors, anything you learned about what you're looking for in support or you know, board dynamics when you're navigating these kind of uncharted waters? I know people can get pretty upset on the board if the company's not performing, but when it's a you know nuclear moment for an, for the entire world, what did did you see a lot of you know do you see you or other founders dealing with ugliness in that period, or do you think people all kind of come around because it's so extreme? What's the? I, I mean, I, I heard stories of ugliness through the grapevine, and I sit on some boards, but you know, the investors and the board of Zeal are. They're, they're, they're such a class. They really are. They, they've always been very supportive and they've all gotten their hands dirty in the operations. And, but it, it immediately, and I don't remember which board member it was, uh, said, we have to have weekly board meetings. Like until we're out of this crisis, we need to meet every single week. So we, we put this recurring event in the calendar for Wednesdays at, I think it's like at one o'clock for an hour. And, that thing just went and went and went. <laughs> like it, it, did, it had an end date of the end of 2020, but wow. we were convinced that hey, within a couple of months, things will be back to normal again. No, we had a weekly meeting <laughs> through like November 1. And then we changed it to every two weeks until Christmas. And then finally, we're like, okay, let's just go back to quarterly. But even last week, we were on a call. We said, you know, I'm kind of miss getting together because we were getting together every single week. Right. And some of you may know that the lovely Venus Williams is on our board mm. and she had only joined um, about seven, eight months before COVID. 
know, to okay. a regular quarterly in-person meeting that you fly into. And right. then it turns into a weekly Zoom meeting. Right. More, and, a little more than you can sign up for. I mean, hats off to her and, and, and the other board members. There was 90 plus percent attendance between, you know, March 22, whenever that first one was, to Christmas. Like over 90% attendance. I was the only one who had 100% attendance. But it That's was great. incredible. And w- would you recommend that for folks going to a weekly board meeting? I've never heard of that happening. And I do know that for a lot of entrepreneurs, some find a lot of value in the board meeting, some don't. And, but I think what is consistent, though, is there's a decent amount of prep, right? There's work created and, you know, it's hard to communicate everything going on with people who aren't in the weeds every day without yeah. well, great materials. I'm glad you asked that question because here's how it went. We decided to go to a weekly company meeting, too. We, we, we would have weekly company meetings in person, and, but it was more of a four-hour sort of sessions where you review your you know, quarterly KPIs and how you're doing against them. This became something else because we were, again, in triage mode. So, And we still have now weekly Monday town halls for an hour from noon to one. So people are dialing in worldwide. And does everyone attend? or? Yeah, you, it's, do, man, do it's mandatory. Uh, but there's some people sometimes who can't attend. They're on vacation right. or, or something else pops up. But yeah, we've got like 90 plus percent attendance every Monday. So every Sunday night, uh, and I now have a template, of course, a year later, but I write yeah. out like a one hour sort of review of what's going on in the business. So I started off for about five, six, seven minutes, and then each senior leader presents his or her section. So there's a format now. And then we do Q&A at the end. And we also talk about like good stuff and bad stuff that happened in the prior week. It's been really fantastic. So what happened is I would do that meeting on Mondays at noon. And then on Tuesday night, I would take that template and just modify it just slightly. And that became my board meeting. So it was actually very easy to do the weekly board meetings because I was doing all the work Sunday night for the Monday town hall. But I found it very helpful because the investors, you know, and the board was extremely nervous. You got zero revenue. mm -hmm. And now you have a lot of money at risk, right? They're they're in on this thing. You know, you have years, years of investment at risk. Mm -hmm. So this helped to calm them down over time. But I will say, you know, when I first mentioned in late March, like, guys, we're going to launch the medical business that I've kind of been hinting at for, you know, two and a half years here, <laughs> you know, half the board was like, how are you going to do that? You don't even have, you don't even have that in your DNA. Mm-hmm. And it's crisis mode. Like, you should just only focus on the core business and make sure it comes back. But, but the other half, you know, I think saw right away, this is just an extension of the existing, you know, values and, and um, strengths of the company. So we're in support. Let's do it. And I, I think within a couple of months, you know, everybody was like, yeah, this, this is terrific. We see the future here. Just keep at it. So in hindsight, offering more products through the same delivery network was the right decision, leaning into the crisis. That's one of the, the conclusions. But uh, the twist is that they need to be must-have services. And that's the one thing I was always struggling with at Zeal. That you know, I, I like to be very transparent for people who know me. I, I, I talk about margins, revenue, amounts we've raised. Uh, in our town halls, we show people our P&L, our cash position. I have many, many employees who will, even like the new ones who started last week, say, like, I've never been in a company that does this sort of thing. This is insane. The only thing we're not transparent about is everybody's salary. I have not figured out a way to be transparent about salary. And I read online somewhere the other day that this one founder pays 
every single employee of the 40 has the same salary. All 40 people, including uh -huh. the founders. It's like $162,000 each or some crazy number I wonder what like the twist that. is there. There's got to be like different equity plans or something. Because I think there's different equity plans. He did say that. Get and he did more say senior that talent to sign up. He did say that in the blog. But yeah. yeah, the salary thing is the only weird one. I don't know how you solve that one. But we've been transparent like this at every company I've been part of since, you know, 1997. So this is what we do. But I think people appreciate it. It makes them more comfortable, less nervous when you really know what's going on. And you don't think that the founders and the leadership team has anything to hide. So, so you know, that's, that's the way we operate. But, but so must have, this thing we were struggling with is that massage therapy is nice to have. Mm -hmm. And it's something it's that's good. not... Yeah, and it's something that's not covered by insurance, even though interestingly, about 65, 70% of all customers who get massage, and not just on the Zeal platform, but when they fill out the reasons why they're getting it, 65, 70%, they're in pain, they have headaches, they can't sleep, they have PTSD, they're post-operative, they're prenatal. So they're doing it for a medical reason, but right. our healthcare system just generally hasn't accepted massage therapy as something that should be covered, which is changing. And we'll be announcing some stuff, like I said, in a few weeks and a few months, where I think we're, we're part of that change. And hopefully it'll be very exciting over the coming months and years. Let's take that tangent for a second. Why do you think massage therapy hasn't met criteria or standards for the insurance side? What, what is that? What is the context around that? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but it just became a spa-like treatment, I think, hundreds of years ago. You'd go to the Turkish baths, right? You'd... you'd um, you know, you'd, you'd get pampered, you know, it was you mean something like, that, more like a recreational yeah, experience rather yeah. than medicinal. Yeah. And then, you know, when you see what's posted online about massage, it's, you know, people at, in the Hamptons by the pool, it's especially massage at home. When we first launched, people were like, that's for the 1% of the 1%, right? Well, it turned out it's not. It's actually reasonably affordable for about 150 bucks for an hour. You can get a very relaxing, you know, soothing massage. You can, you can take care of an injured joint. People don't even know that, you know, during physical therapy, you usually will have 15 minutes of manual therapy and that's coded as massage therapy. So mm. it is partially covered, just not covered when you're a massage therapist. So the people who have to deliver it have to be more trained. They have to become part of the medical establishment. And that's how you, and that's how you ultimately make it a part of the healthcare system. You know, you take it out of spas, you take it out of, you know, hotels, and you put it in clinical settings, and you turn it into an actual, you know, healthcare service. Okay. Um, one of the things about your business that I find fascinating is the operational complexity. And you alluded to this earlier on, how, how difficult it is to deliver the appointments at the speed you're delivering. And increasingly, we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs uh, show up, and whether it's micromobility or... Ubers of the world, anything in the on-demand economy is almost making this look easy. But I have a feeling it's not easy. And I have a feeling there's going to be a lot more people trying to enter this space over time. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs entering this specific niche? Something doesn't have to be massage, but when they're coming to do an on-demand service, is there any best practices or technologies people need to know about? Yeah. Relevant? Well, and in-home, I was going to say in-home healthcare, which again is even more complex because healthcare is highly regulated and you have to be HIPAA compliant. You have to take good notes because there's always a referring physician of some kind. 
So when we come on site to do something, even a COVID test, there's a referring yeah, physician, right? So there's, there's a lot more complexity. Um, and then when you're on site for an hour performing a service or 10 minutes performing a service, you're in someone's home, you're in their s- sacred space, right? So you also have to, you have to think about those dynamics. Like if something happens or you break something, like, you know, you have to have a whole team and insurances that kick in. So we've had to build all that stuff over the last many years and deal with a lot of different issues. Um, and we got very good at it. But, you know, there's nothing, I, I would say, like, there's nothing really off the shelf per se. Uh, you, you really have to, you have to think through all the processes and have it in your DNA. So I always tell founders, like, the, the best companies build their own software. I mean, you can use pieces off the shelf, but yeah. ultimately you have to build it, you know, for your business. And there's going to be nothing really off the shelf that you could just use. Otherwise, you're just like a retail store, right? Right. You know, then you're not a high-functioning tech company, right? Then you're not raising VC money. Just open up like a retail store or some little simple local online business and use somebody else's software and just run that business. So we, we both did our MBAs and I remember taking an operations class uh, where there was more meat on the bone than I expected. There was more science and methodology around queuing theory and some of these other things where there's formulas that, you know, I, I took it away as one of the 10 things maybe I found in business school where uh, I, was, I, I found it to be a nugget of enlightenment that I would take with me for my career. How intensive do you guys think through kind of operational like research and science of this when you're dealing with something of that scale? Do people who are starting companies, can they just kind of glue a basic intuitive methodology together or do they need to go find a PhD from the local MBA program to help them set it up the right way in the beginning? What's the uh, level of complexity and concern that someone should have when they're starting in this space? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And by the way, I didn't do my MBA, but I do have a master's in chemical engineering and I did okay. do... I did take four classes. So then you didn't take operations class. I did, no, but I was going to say, I took four classes at Stanford Business School and I took operations research. Okay, so right. I, I took a class on how you set up a factory, uh, factory flow and, um, and the issue of bottlenecks, which is really what you're referring to. So right. we were just reviewing before this podcast here in the office, a whole insane OR diagram of one of our processes. And you can imagine what these things look like. There's like dozens of boxes everywhere and all these arrows. And, you know, if if yes, go this way. If no, go that way. And just how it all triages. That is not something that I can do now. (laughs) 25 Mm -hmm. years ago, I could build one of those. But you hire great people. That's the whole point. A good good founder and CEO builds an amazing team around him or her, right? And, and, And pushes the stuff, you know, that he or she isn't good at to those know those people right and then just provides vision and passion to get everybody really excited and also like i I don't code anymore the last time i coded in the 90s was like with with cobol and fortran and nobody even uses a language anymore when i was 12 i coded with punch cards punch cards on an ibm machine so this is the i don't know how to do this stuff so when we have these coding sessions sometimes i'll come for a few hours I just bring in food and coffee and booze to everybody. That's my function. Right. Right. Keep You're everybody happy. Yeah, I'm the cheerleader. I, I talk right. about the vision. I give them a bunch of food. We toast and they just code away. Right. So, so you don't have to know how to do everything. You just have to bring the right people together. I'll, I'll add in for the folks listening. If you didn't do your MBA, didn't do undergrad and operations or and, you know, had some sort of formal education, there's a great book 
that uh, a lot of the operations class require folks to read. It's called The Goal, and it's a fictional book about someone working in a factory. But while it's a little story, uh, it teaches you how to think about operations. So you can skip the class and read the book. Uh, again, it's called The Goal. Uh, I'm a nerd, so I loved it, but I think most people probably hate reading it. But, I'm going to uh, check if, it out. I haven't heard of it. If you're interested, all. it's a, uh, you know, you're, you're reading kind of a novel, but you're, you're experiencing someone living through the discovery of operational insight. That's cool. Um, what do you think the industry needs, right? When we're looking at more broadly the on demand industry, uh, you know, are there picks and shovel services or tool sets that, you know, entrepreneurs listening should go to seek out and fill in? Are there, solutions that you think you know in spaces in the on-demand industry that a type of service hasn't been delivered yet that needs to be done and you're not focusing on it what are the opportunities for folks right now oh that well i was going to say that i'm not focusing on that's harder i mean we're focusing on in-home healthcare because we think it's time has finally come kind of like telehealth pre-covid yep. telehealth was just a little niche thing and during covid it's up 10 20 30 x i mean the numbers are off the charts and uh, health and human services is finally thinking about erasing those lines where only somebody who is uh, medically licensed in a state can see somebody over video or call them on the phone in that state. Those lines have been temporarily erased during COVID and now they're talking about permanently erasing them, which quite frankly, they should. Why can't I be in New York City and talk to a psychologist who's licensed in California, get great care? And, right. you know, why not? But but pre-COVID, you couldn't. So, so in-home is the same thing. The healthcare system is generally thought of in-home as you have to be confined to your home. You have to be like morbidly obese or um, you know, dementia or Parkinson's, unable to move for them to even cover healthcare to the home. No longer, right? It's now the new paradigm. So I think in-home healthcare is the next big thing. And there are going to be dozens and dozens of competitors and adjacent type companies to what we're doing at Zeal. So the opportunities in in-home healthcare are, you know, the delivery of care, which is what we're focused on, the logistics. But then there's the EMRs for in-home care. There's the delivery of prescriptions. There's all the monitoring using Bluetooth cameras, right? Everything else to see how somebody's functioning. There's like you were telling me about your friend earlier. I have some friends who are now putting that continuous glucose monitor right on their tricep right so you can start measuring somebody's like vitals at all times there's there's one of those coming out i hear through the grapevine now at stanford for blood they'll continuously mm. monitor certain items in your blood mm. so that you can That's start annoying. to see what your testosterone or ldl levels and you know, glucose is in real time like throughout minute by minute you know in like five minute increments that's incredible, right? Right. Think about what happens now. You go to the doctor once a year for a physical. You get all your results this one point in time. That doesn't tell you shit. You know, you want to see right. it throughout the day and week. What about when I'm hungry, when I'm sleeping, when I've had a big meal? What kind of meal? Or when, when something I'm, starts to go wrong. Or when something starts to go wrong. So that aspect, I think, of, of on-demand, if you will, this continuously monitoring of your body, of your vitals, of even what's going on in your house, you know, so non-healthcare. That's, I think, the next, next big wave. And do you think in-home healthcare is the path for people who aren't stuck at home? Right? If you're healthy and... Oh, absolutely, yeah. You have access to a car, 
why would people decide to do the healthcare, you know, their treatments at home versus going into a oh, hospital? Facility? There's, there's so many reasons. The first right. is that non-compliance on a prescription of any kind is off the charts. People just like, they, they get lazy. They don't want to travel. The facility's too far. You got to take time off work, find a babysitter. All those issues are eliminated when the care comes to your house. You don't mm. have to find a babysitter. You don't have to drive there. And the hours are better. You know, at Zeal, we're delivering care as early as 7 a.m. and as late as 10.30 p.m. start times. We're open longer. We're open seven days a week. So you can get a lot more done. Also, why, why should you have to go to the laboratory to draw your blood? I can come to you, draw your blood, and carry it over there. You know, yeah. you'll save an hour of your time. It just takes five minutes for me to come over and draw your blood. So it's that kind of thing. That, that convenience factor, um, that higher level of compliance means in the long run, we will save money in this country because more people will get health care. It won't be such a pain in the ass to go to the doctor or go to the lab or go to the hospital. Are there short-term health care or cost reductions that come with this too? I'm, I'm imagining, you know, we're seeing the remote work and now people, companies are spending less money on offices. Right. Is there a parallel for medical real estate? Or yeah, maybe. That- I, haven't even, I haven't even thought about it. I mean, it's very hard to deliver. Well, it's impossible to deliver ER care at home. It's also, I think, illegal in every state. So ERs will always have a place. Okay. Urgent care, people used to think you can't deliver urgent care to the home. But there's this company, Dispatch Health, that's raised a ton of money in the last six months. And they're delivering urgent care to the home in, in vans and cars that are equipped with urgent care equipment. So even something like flu, stitches, you know, you could take care of at home, right? Yeah. They even have mobile CT trucks now. You could, in theory, come to someone's home, CT scan them in the truck, take off. So there, there's a lot of things you can do at home, surprisingly, <laughs> that I think will help the healthcare system in the long run. Because again, you- the issue is compliance. If, if I have a prescription for 10 PT sessions, and because I can't deal with my time off from work and taking care of my kid, I don't go to any or I go to just three and give up. Right. That, that injury can ultimately become more acute and eventually lead to a surgery or, God forbid, opioid addiction. This right. is where the whole opioid addiction came from. Just take a pill. Like it's just easier to do that than to get your PT sessions. It's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. So if we can come to the house, to get you to take more PT, to get you well faster, that ultimately will save the healthcare system money in the long run and make the humans you know, more mobile, more productive, happier. What types of care do you think are more, most likely to move to be in-home? Well, it's already happening, but again, you know, physical therapy and um, you know, the massage therapy now is in the home, and we're, we're now building out a whole physical therapy practice. Um, you know, simple things, what we call routine medical care, like blood draws, COVID tests, so like vaccinations. Yeah, I think everything that can be done in a physical, you know, we've been exploring this whole thing. There's portable EKGs, portable ultrasounds. There's, um, there's small sort of uh, scales so you can you know, measure weight, you can measure someone's height. So you, you can do a basic physical exam within reason, you know, in the home. There might be a couple parts you can't, or if you uncover something, then you're going to have to go to a specialist. But you can get a lot of this stuff done now in the homes. We call it like routine covered medical care can be delivered at home. Fascinating. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, taking this a different direction for a second. We, we've, I, I mentioned this in the beginning, but I want to come back to it. You're wearing three hats. And I know the primary hat is Zeal. You've got some part-time hats. 
uh, your relationship with Lightspeed, right? Uh, your relationship with Alpaca, where you're an yep. advisor. Yep. How does um, having kind of ancillary roles that are related to the startup community help you as a CEO? Is this something you would recommend for other entrepreneurs out there? I do, yeah. It's, it's not the same as in the early days, we did all these networking events. You, know, you remember in the uh, 2000s, tons sure. of networking events. I, I don't find networking events all that valuable. Those are social activities. Social activities have value. So you know, go to a social activity. Right. But the activities I uh, engage in with Alpaca and Lightspeed, I'm meeting incredibly smart, determined founders. I'm analyzing business plans. I'm learning about new software tools, new business models. So I make some investments, but I also learn a lot of stuff that I can apply back to what I'm doing at Zeal. So you know, we've through one of my investments there, something I've explored, even though I don't invest in it, we may buy that tool at Zeal because I think it's such a great or neat solution to something we're doing. Right. So. So it's really, it's really important. And, and you, also, you also tap this network when you're looking to hire people. So I'll, I'll tap some of the founders that I've invested in and say, do you know anybody for this position? Or I'm looking Got for it. a salesperson. Or, I need a great iOS developer. And they're so helpful, right? Because I'm one of their investors. So it, it gives you kind of more or less a, a curated flow of information and the ability to go back to those organizations and leverage the network. Yeah. And it, and it keeps you, keeps your hand on the pulse of what's going on so that you're aware of like the next, you know, big things, the next trends. Uh, so you're not caught flat footed either in your own business. Do you think CEOs who have gotten to a certain point in their venture company life, life cycle should be thinking about seeking these roles out? I know you, you're a veteran, right? You've been around the block. You probably got a call. Are there, are the first time entrepreneurs out there, should they be thinking, hey, we just raised our B. I'm going to go look for an advisory role. What is, you know, our yeah. EIR role with a venture firm? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. I, mean, I think you need to be a little proactive, but uh, oftentimes these things come to you, but still you have to be a little proactive. Look, there, there are some companies and some VCs who are like the founder better not take any board seats or do anything, right? That interferes with the running of the business. I think you want to gauge how sort of open your, your board is about these outside roles. But I generally find they're helpful. I, and, unless you're spending inordinate amounts of time on them, and, and I really don't, then I find that they're very helpful. They keep your company relevant, you know, out there. People want to support you. You're supporting them. And like I said, good partnerships or new investments or new hires come out of these things. So ultimately, I encourage this kind of activity with my own people and with the companies I'm invested in. I think it's, it's helpful to your business. I do. You mentioned earlier that I, I might have tipped you off on one of the questions for this interview. <laughs> just right? one. Yeah, just one. The just rest one. Of this I've well, been... <laughs> I'd like to keep these pretty surprising for folks. So well, this one, this one needed a little bit of thinking, right? So at least it yeah. was organized. This is the, this is the one. I, I don't want to get trite answers from folks. I want to get truth and insight. Look, you've got a lot of experience. You've probably seen a lot of stuff that most entrepreneurs through the whole career might not see just because we're all going to have different paths. Give us an anecdote, some insight. What's the most important advice you would give another entrepreneur? So there's several lessons I wanted to impart here as we, as we finish this thing. Um, you know, lesson number one, failure is part of the process. 
I remember reading uh, Paulo Coelho's Alchemist, and the line that resonated with me, this was years ago, is that success is falling down seven times and getting up eight. Related to that, lesson number two, never give up. Yeah, if you realize there's an insane structural flaw in your model, like you're selling $1 for $2, and you can never get that cost down, sure, then move on. But if you know that your idea works and you see that your customers are so grateful for your product and you see a path to real scale, keep at it. Remember Churchill, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Could have been talking about startups. Uh, Lesson number three, realize that entrepreneurs aren't born. I really believe this. They're made. You're made through focus, discipline, determination, resilience. You keep at it. You set quarterly goals, and then you work backwards to determine what you have to do each day to get there, and then you do it each and every day like clockwork. You just have a few more, Mark. Lesson number four. These are great. Lesson number four. In order to do lessons, getting a good deal here. I'm giving you seven. So lesson number four is in order to do lessons one and three, right? Failure, never give up, and you know you have to be made, not born. You have to be in very good physical and mental shape. So you work out daily. I do something six days a week, weights, Peloton, yoga, foam rolling, assisted massage and stretching using Zeal's people, of course, and sometimes two of those per day that you got to do it. And nutrition you know, is a big part of this too. You got to eat reasonably healthy food. So cut out the sugar, drink a little bit of coffee, but not too much. Cut back on the alcohol because you want to be in peak shape mentally and physically. Number five, your most important job is sales, getting customers to buy, hiring talent, raising money. The second most important, cash, which obviously is related to sales, because sales generate cash. But you have to make sure that your company has enough and you have to use it wisely. Most companies fail because the entrepreneur thinks sales is beneath him or her. I've seen it too many times. Or because the entrepreneur allows the organization to run out of money. It's, it's, it's a travesty. Uh, lesson number six is that B2B is easier and a larger opportunity than B2C. Of course, B2C is sexy, and there are numerous examples of successful B2C companies, but B2B contracts are bigger, oftentimes more recurring, a little easier to market and sell to. And then the last one, number seven, I've learned over many, many years, is I believe in subscriptions. I want every startup to launch a subscription. Even if that subscription can't be the whole business, launch a subscription. I work on it with every company I'm part of. Hmm. Those are fascinating insights. Will you give uh, one little line of color on the subscription bit? I, I yeah, think sure. Everyone knows subscription businesses, but the idea of kind of shoehorning it in to another model is fascinating. Yeah, like basically, I just every time I join a board or I invest in a company, you know, some of them obviously have a subscription, but a lot don't. So it's like, what are you doing exactly? Because otherwise, people just you know are buying every once in a while and. You know, how do you, how do you, can you create sort of some certainty around where your revenue will be? Otherwise, every first of the month, you got to try to figure out what the frick your revenue is going to be. So imagine if most of it, if not all of it, is already determined. That would be amazing, right? So I just sort of analyze what's being sold and just figure out if there's a way to get a little more recurrence or to create a little bit of extra value. So, for example, if, uh, you know, companies like Uber and, and, um, you know, say DoorDash, in theory, didn't need a subscription. People order so much, and yet they both do, right? If you pay for the Uber Eats subscription, which I now have, you save money on every order. 
You get like priority access. If you do have an issue, which I had the other day, there's an 800 number you can call. Someone answered it right away. I was amazed. And I got a full refund on an issue I had because I took a picture of some undercooked meat. I'm like, this is a very valuable subscription. You know, and on top of that, you got the $15 a month from the Amex Platinum card if you had that too. So free subscription. <laughs> so that's even better. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just valuable. So at Zeal, we, we decided early on, you know, people should get massage all the time, even though they don't normally think of it that way. So we have a subscription where you get a massage a month, comes with a free massage table, a robe, and it also comes with a 20% discount. So about 50%, this is all pre-COVID, of course, 50% of our revenue pre-COVID was already baked in the next month from wow. the subscription. I was trying to figure out a way to get it to 100%. Didn't quite get there. But, but that just 50%. takes a load off your mind you know, every yeah. month, knowing that you've got all this you know, revenue and cash already coming. That's fantastic. With sage advice, Dahmer, thank you so much for making time to join thank us Thank you, today. Mark. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> Special thanks to Samer for taking the time to join me today. There is no easy way to navigate a crisis, but hopefully there were a few key takeaways from today's conversations that will help founders accordingly. In particular, I thought Samer's advice on subscriptions was very interesting. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.